This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Hey, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Man, I love you guys. I'm really happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, Let's pray, and then I'm going to do my best to be brief. Um, No promises, but I'm going to do my best. So let's pray, and then we'll get into how Isaiah 58 fits into what we're trying to do today. Father, we're coming into this room in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. Some of us are here really feeling our need for you. Some of us are overwhelmed. Some of us are excited. Some of us don't know why we're here. So Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill all of us with your presence, that you would change our hearts, that you would lift up Jesus and help us to see with clear eyes uh, the grace of God. And will you help us to hold fast to that more than anything else? Father, will you be present? Will you accept everything that we have um, to offer you today? Pray this all in your name. Amen. So when we talked about doing this Sunday, doing something a little bit different, taking a step back uh, to kind of cap our season of fasting, uh, I was thinking about, I knew I was going to be on the calendar to preach, and so I was thinking, should we go to somewhere else that would be more appropriate? And then I saw that we were in Isaiah 58 um, and realized that Isaiah 58 is the perfect word for our church and I think for you in this season. Because Isaiah 58 is God addressing a people who are really aware that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. They've heard the promises of God. They've even seen God act in certain ways. And also, maybe even more strongly than they see and feel that, they see and feel what's broken and what's lacking and what's been lost. And so there's this kind of cry underlying Isaiah 58, this question that the people are asking God, which is, God, we've been looking to you. We've been fasting, we've been praying, we've been repenting, and things still are not changing. Things still are not the way that they're supposed to be, and I don't feel any better about where I am. And so Isaiah 58 is God's loving response and rebuke to his people when we come before him in fasting and repentance because ultimately this chapter is God's warning against a surface level piety and a promise about what God will do when we turn to him with our whole hearts. So instead of doing a verse by verse going through talking for 35, 40 minutes, I'm just going to give hopefully a broad like thematic call and some exhortations 
to what God, I think, has for us. And so I'm going to split up into two parts, which is a warning and a promise. Let's first look at the warning. The warning is in the first seven verses. I hope you heard it uh, when Kristen read them. It should have felt like a bucket of ice water in, in, in all of our faces. Because what God is doing at the beginning of this chapter is refusing to let us presume on his grace. Because ironically, when we presume on or take his grace for granted, we're actually in danger of failing to receive his grace. And so um, God is reminding us, hey, grace and mercy are not abstract things. Sin, transgression are not abstract things. Things. They are specific, ever-present realities at work in and through us. And none of us, none of us in this room, no matter where we came from, is immune from the kind of self-righteousness, self-reliance, and selfish sin that this passage is pointing out and talking about. So here's ultimately the warning. Be very, very careful about trying to manipulate God. Be careful about thinking also that you would never try to manipulate him. Because what Isaiah is pointing out is saying, hey, when you are fasting, you're not actually doing it to fall on your face before God, to follow after him. You're doing it to get something from him. You're doing it because you see an outcome, you see a thing that you want, and so you're trying to force God to give it to you through surface-level expressions of worship, fasting, or repentance. It's self-centered. It doesn't actually take sin seriously. And yet, we all all of us have a tendency to assume that if we do the right things, if we just do the right things, then God is kind of obligated to do something back for us, right? I was having a conversation earlier this week at lunch with a friend and a member, and he was just kind of talking about how he always just had this assumption that if he did the right things, like, you know, showed up to church, read his Bible, went to the right school, did well at his job, life would kind of always be like up and to the right, gradually increasing, getting better. That's just not the way that it works, right? We do the right things, and things don't turn out the way that we want them to or expect them to. And we're tempted to then grow bitter towards God and say, what's the deal? I thought we're doing the right things. Why are you not like coming through for me. But here's, here's the deal. What Isaiah, what God wants us to know in this passage is that true fasting and true repentance is expressed not just in the way that we approach God, but it's expressed in the way that we approach others. This way that we treat others. It is turning away from ourselves and fixing our eyes fully upon the grace of God and orienting ourselves for the good of those around us. And trivializing or acting out repentance is a dangerous thing to do. We don't need to pretend that we're better than we are, anyone in this room, which is what we're also tempted to do. The fast that God chooses is to take a hard look at reality, acknowledge it, and fall on our faces in dependence before him. And so, 
in an attempt to try to not just be abstract, an attempt to try to do what Isaiah 58, 1 says, which is, don't hold back, declare to my people their transgressions, their sins. I think that the Lord has graciously and clearly exposed sin in our church in the last year. And when I say that, I, I, I mean everywhere. I mean that in leadership. I mean that in volunteers. I mean that in members. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. And so here's a list of areas where I think we collectively need the grace of God and need to repent. I'm just going to read these. We've been quick to speak, quick to judge, and slow to listen. We've committed the sin of partiality, preferring and pursuing a certain type of person over others. We've been afraid to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and instead have embraced the easy path of comfort and consumption. Despite our desire to pursue a multicultural, multi-ethnic, Revelation 7 kind of body, we failed to embody that, kind, that united yet diverse community of faith that unites around the cross of Jesus. We have not acted in a loving way that hopes, bears, believes, and endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. We've too often failed to break bonds of wickedness Share our food with the hungry, bring the homeless poor in, and clothe the naked, like Isaiah 58, 6 through 7 commands. We've judged people according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. We've been cowards, slow to speak to difficult issues and situations. We've spoken harshly about and to each other. We've slandered each other. We've gossiped about each other. And we have failed to embody a Philippians 2 mind of Christ, count others more significant than yourselves kind of posture in our lives and in our body. And what God wants from us in Isaiah 58 is not to turn away from that. It's to look directly at it. It's not to point fingers at other people that you think are more guilty, it's to say, oh my God, will you forgive us and will you have mercy on us? So God, will you do that? Will you have mercy on us for Jesus' sake? On all of us? It's actually the grace of God and it's the mercy of God to open our eyes to sin, failing, weakness. Because you can't actually get real healing until until you are there. And so as as shocking as much of a blast of cold water these verses can be in our face, it's actually gracious of God to give us a warning because following the warning, there is actually a promise. God never lets sin, brokenness, 
whatever else have the final word. There is always a promise of restoration, which is what the rest of the chapter is about. And so instead of me spending a lot of time explaining it, I just want to read the last half of this chapter again, let the words speak for themselves, and then I'm going to leave you with three exhortations. Look what God says. I'm going to start in verse 8. After all that, the promise is if you return and repent, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of this finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord, listen to this, will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then... You shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Three exhortations. God responds to repentance with restoration. So trust him. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God is faithful to discipline his people and it is loving and kind that he does it because his discipline, whenever he exposes sin or failing in our lives, is never for the sake of shaming or crushing us. It's always for the sake of restoration. It's always for the sake of redemption. That is the kind of God he is. He, he is not content to let us live in a dream world that we create. He always, always, always wants to have our eyes wide open to reality and say, hey, the voice of sin, the voice of failing, the voice of hurt is not more powerful. It does not have the final say. The grace and healing and mercy of God through Jesus Christ has the final say. And so the exhortation for us in this passage is to hear that and actually believe it and trust that God is able to bring redemption and restoration. Exhortation number two. God guides and provides in helpless places. So before you look to anything else, look to him. Look down at verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. That phrase literally means a place with no resources and no hope. There's nothing there. Everything has fallen. Everything has been destroyed. And there is nothing left to rely on. And look what the, look what the promise is. 
The promise is not that God will take us out of that place. The promise is actually that God will be with us in that place. He says, I will be with you. I'll satisfy your desire. I will make your bones strong, which is a kind of pointing out God is far more concerned about strengthening and providing resources internally than he is with making everything be okay and just go away. He's doing something inside of you when you find yourself in a scorched, hopeless place, which my hunch is a lot of us feel like we're kind of there. And if you don't, you will at some point in your life. And so when you're there, the exhortation is, God's not somewhere else. God is right there. He is providing in helpless places. I love what Melissa Kruger, who's an author, said about this passage. She said, sleepless nights, difficult conversations, and unexpected waves of grief have left me weary and worn. I felt like I have nothing to offer. Perhaps he leads us through the scorched places just so we have nothing else to rely on but himself. When the landscape is barren, we must cry to him for bread. There's no other option. And mercy of mercies, he does not leave us hungry. Exhortation number three. God's way is the best way. So rest and believe. That's the end of the passage. I won't read it. We've already heard it a couple times. When we find ourselves in places where we feel beyond ourselves, where we feel overwhelmed, where we feel like there is no hope, where we feel like the damage is too deep, there's too much that has been lost, what we're tempted to do is to grab onto something and to try to do the best that we can to control the situation, right? If everything feels hopeless, I'm at least going to take care of myself and make sure that I'm okay in this. And what God is actually inviting us to do in that place is not to forge or make our own way, but it is to actually rest. That's why he's talking about the Sabbath over and over again. When you're beyond yourself, when you feel like you're in a scorched place, the last thing you want to do is rest. Because if you stop moving, like, is everything just going to fall apart? And God's actually saying, hey, this is the way for healing, for restoration, and return. It's to rest in him, to rest in his grace. And so with this passage, with all the warnings that you and I should take deeply to heart, this passage is ultimately not telling you that you need to repent harder and be better and, and just like... Um, appease God with your response. The call, the point is to actually just give everything up and hold your hands up and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm resting in you. That's my only option. My only option is the grace and mercy and love of the God who redeems and brings new life in and out of all things. Which, here we are in the year 2022, on the other side of the cross, we know that the lengths that God will go to to keep his word, to rebuild what has been broken. He's talking to people who've lost everything, by the way, right? And when we're talking about rebuilding ruins, it's, it's literal ruins. Their home has been destroyed. They're in exile. They've lost everything. And he says, hey, I'll rebuild. And I'm actually going to use you 
to rebuild also if you trust in my grace because he is the God who goes even into death, into the worst places, into the most scorched places. And his grace is stronger. It is more powerful. And the resurrection of Jesus leads to new life and a kingdom that cannot and will not ever fall or be shaken. And so as we engage in the rest of the service, I want us to have our eyes wide open to reality, to look and examine in our own hearts, our own lives, our own church, the places that we need to repent, that we need the grace of God. And more than that, I want us to just grab as tightly as we can onto the grace, mercy, promises and forgiveness of God, no matter where you find yourself, whether this is the first, your first time in this room, or whether you've been in this room every single week that we've been in here, we all need that. The call is for all of us. So I'm going to pray. And then Mark, uh, I believe, is going to come up. And the rest of the time is to pray and, and worship. So Father, thank you for being gracious to us. Thank you for loving us enough to confront us with real sin, real failing, real weakness. God, will you help us? Um, I pray that you would fill this place with your spirit, with your presence, and with your glory. Um, because we need you. We're not trying to like get or manipulate any other outcome other than more of you. Um, because we believe that you are our hope. Um, and you are the foundation that we're standing on. So Lord, I pray that you would heal and rebuild even in this time we have together. I pray this all in your name. Amen.